We are in the book of Ruth today, a strange place for a Christmas celebration. But uh, we're going to be reading a couple of selected passages. One is Ruth chapter 1, verse 11 through 22, uh, through 21, and then we'll be jumping over to chapter 4, verse 14. Ruth chapter 1, 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law and goodbye, and, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has left my life very bitter. Chapter 4, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. His father was, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is God's word. Well, it's Christmas, and what in the world are we doing in the book of Ruth? Well, I'll tell you. If you were to go and apply to a job today, for, you, you really wanted to make an impression and you walked into the company, the first thing you would give them is your resume. And on that resume, it would talk about all of the things that you have done. It would talk about where you've gone to school. It would talk about the companies that you've worked for the accomplishments that you've made working for those companies, the things that you have contributed to the success of those companies. 
It would talk about the things that you've learned along the way that would equip you for this job and why they should hire you. It would say who you are professionally in terms of the qualifications for this job. If you were in first century Israel and you took that resume and you gave it to your prospective employer and he looked at it and said, hmm, what is this for? And you would say, well, it's my resume. He would say, but it's all about you. And you'd say, yeah. He'd say, but who are you? Well, this is who I am. He said, that's not who you are. Do you think you were... Do you think the world revolves around you? Do you think the world started at your birth? No, who are you? Who is your father? Who are your cousins? Who is your clan? What, what significance do you have in the world? Because you don't have any significance in you yourself. Your, your significance is in who you're connected to. That's why Matthew starts his account with who Jesus is connected to. Because it was important to the people to understand who made him who he is in that particular sense. What were his qualifications? What were his connections? What was his clan? What was his tribe? What, all of those things were very, very important to people. Who are you? Now, there are certain names in there that we would expect to appear. Names that, that, that are impressive, that carry a lot of weight. There are names that just kind of show the bloodline that talk about that that are very important. But there are certain names there that are unexpected names. Now, it's the names that are unexpected that really get our attention. It's the ones that don't need to be there. It's the names that perhaps, if you were writing your genealogical resume, you might not put in there intentionally. You might make sure that they were just kind of secreted off to the side or dropped off. And there are names there that are unusual because of gender. Because in a man's world in that particular time, the mother was not the most important individual. Different in our time, I think, as it should be, but it wasn't then. There are people that wouldn't be there because of their race. It would be a bit scandalous to have somebody outside of the racial clan group as part of that bloodline. And there are some that wouldn't be there perhaps because of issues in their background that might just as well be left in the background. But God made sure that these names were there. They were like big flashing lights saying, pay attention. They're like God saying, I want you to understand why these people are here. Pay attention. Because these, as much as the rock stars 
that are in the list come together to make up what Jesus is and who he is and why he is important. We're talking about four women in these days. We've talked about two of them already. We talked about Tamar. We talked about Rahab last week in the first service. If you missed it, either one of those, you can always go online and listen to them. And this week we come to Ruth. There are lots of reasons why Ruth shouldn't be there. She is a woman, and that in itself ought to disqualify her just because of the way they did things. And she's one of those people. She's a Moabite, a cursed people, a depreciated people. So we're going to try to figure this out today. We're going to try to do a little bit of a flyover of the book of Ruth, look at some of the highlights, come to understand what it's all about, And then we're going to draw several lessons that I think come right out of Ruth that make it important why she's where she is. So as we look at the book of Ruth, I think there are four words that we can use to describe just kind of a broad outline of where we're going with this. First word is, it's a wreck. I mean, Ruth, uh, what, 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 what happens to Naomi and the family, I mean, it's like a train wreck. It's one of those things where you say, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Then there's a return. And then there's a redemption. And then there's a recognition. A wreck, a return, a redemption, and a recognition. And it's an intense story. It starts off with a famine. Famines are terrible things. They destroy fortunes. They destroy lives and extended famines. I mean, we know what drought is all about. Just imagine what drought would be in California these last years if we didn't have things like irrigation, if we didn't have things like water coming in from other parts of the country. Well, you picture that in ancient times where they don't have those kinds of resources. You depend upon the rains, and it impoverishes entire nations, and that's what happened. And so Elimelech, Naomi and two sons, Mahon and Killian, decide it's time to move. And they pick up and move to Moab. Now, it's a strange choice going to Moab because the Moabites and the Israelites were not friends. Moabites were those people to the Israelites, and Israelites weren't much better to the Moabites. There are religious reasons, there are faith reasons why this enters in. They serve different gods, they're different people, and they're always at each other's throats. But that's probably where the rains were falling. That makes the most sense. And it says they went there to live for a while. The implication is they went there for a period of time, but it extends, and all of their properties, all of their holdings, all of their inheritance is lost in Israel. So what they have is they have every, their stake is now in Moab. Elimelech, the dad, dies. Now you can imagine, you're far away from home, you're away from relatives, you're away from your support group, you're away from everything, and dad dies. 
The sons grow up, come of age, and they marry, and they marry two Moabite women, Orpha and Ruth. Interracial marriage, interfaith marriage. It doesn't make sense, but you know, interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't condemn it, it doesn't condone it, it just simply says this is what happened. There are lots of people that try to say this was God's judgment on Naomi for moving to Moab. This was this or that. Or the, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. It just simply says this is what happened. And time goes on. We're talking about close to a decade. And somewhere along the way, not only does Elimelech die, but Malan and Killian die. And so suddenly you have a woman who has lost everything. She is out of touch with family. She has no husband. She has no children. It's a train wreck. Life was not supposed to be this way. And there she is with two daughters. And the good thing is she has two daughters-in-law that love her, that can support her, that can work with her. They're all three widows, and it's very difficult. But they hear that the rain has started falling once again in Israel. Bethlehem is now becoming a place where once again there can be something happen. And the important thing, probably more than anything, is there is some family contact there, but quite frankly not much because she's been out of touch for 10 years. And so all three of them, and this is very important to note, all three of them start back to Bethlehem. Now for Naomi, she's going home. For Orpha and Ruth, they are not going home. They are immigrating to a new country. They are moving to a new place. They are leaving behind family. And one wonders why they're doing it. And it is almost certainly out of loyalty to Naomi and perhaps pressure from Naomi. Because they all three start back together and it comes to a certain point. In this return where Naomi makes a selfless gesture, she says, Girls, this is not going to work. And it's like the light goes on with Naomi. She says, it can't be this way. I can't do this to you. Go home because you have no future with me. You're Moabites. Nobody is going to marry you in Israel. I don't have anything, any dowry to give. I don't, you have nothing. Go home to your family Go home to your gods. Now I want you to understand that what Naomi is doing is she is cutting off her last realistic hope of support, her last realistic hope of assistance. She is making a gesture that is utterly selfless. Go home. I will make the trip alone. And you can almost sense in Naomi that that idea of saying, I'm going home to die, girls. But you know, Naomi means sweetness. And there's something sweet in Naomi. And when Orpha hears that, Orpha has a real love for Naomi. And she weeps at the thought of leaving her. She cries and she's sad. But at the end of the day, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, she has a future in Moab. She has family in Moab. She has people that she can respond to. And she's a young woman She's probably attractive. She has a chance of of remarrying and finding hope and happiness 
in Moab. So off she goes. And there stands Ruth. And she and Naomi are hugging, but something has awakened in Ruth. Because her mother-in-law, who she has always loved, suddenly has said, it's not about me. She suddenly has made this gesture that says, I am no longer an issue. I give up everything for you. And Ruth responds. That act of selfless love, that act of total giving, awakens in Ruth something where she says, no, I can't do this. And this classic passage, she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. I am tying my star to you. This is an amazing statement. Because when she says, your people will be my people, that's from her perspective, but she's a Moabite. That's something that she can't force. There's a lot of talk about immigration these days. A lot of talk that certain people want in and certain people want out and want to deal with and don't want to deal with, and they're the Moabites. Oh, yes, they are the Moabites. And when people immigrate, people always immigrate from a difficult situation to a good situation, right? People immigrate because they want to escape something, or if they don't want to escape something, they at least want a desire or a hope for a better life. Who can blame them? They want a better hope for themselves. They want a better hope for their children. Regardless of the rightness or wrongness of it, regardless of all of that, there's this desire, there's this urge for something better or at least to escape something devastating. Ruth is not moving from her perspective from better, from worse to better. Ruth is moving from better to worse because from Ruth's perspective, all of her hope for the future all of her realistic chance for happiness in a marital sense, in a, in a sense of family bonding and family support, all of that is back in Moab. But Ruth suddenly responds in this selfless move to, says, to say, I will connect myself to you. Because when she gets to Israel, she is one of those people. You want to know how bad it is? There are two verses in chapter 2. One is verse, let me get it for you, 9, and one is verse 22. Chapter 9 of of verse 2, Boaz, who we'll meet in just a minute, says, whenever I have told my men not to lay a hand on you. As a Moabite woman gleaning the fields, and Naomi reiterates the thing in verse 22, It was simply expected that she would be assaulted. It was simply expected that she would be beat up. 
because she's a Moabite. And that's what happens to Moabites. Moabites are not treated nicely in Israel. And you know who would be called in order to rectify the situation in terms of, in order to execute justice? You know who would be called? Nobody. Because that's what you do to a Moabite. If they're beating, if they're in the fields, if they're competing for the food, you just hit them. Or worse. She is not going back to a good situation from her perspective. She knows the drill. And you have on the one hand this woman who reaches out, who says, I will go back and I will be all alone by myself. Naomi in just a moment when she gets back to Bethlehem is going to say to people, don't call me sweet anymore. Don't call me, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because God has dealt severely with me. I am a bitter old woman. And yet there is something that arises in the sweetness of Naomi that attracts Ruth that says, I am the place where you should be. There is something in her. You know, love can cause us to be God's answer even when we don't see it, when we don't realize it. You may be going through difficult times. You may be going through harsh times. You may see yourself as discouraged and downcast and beaten down. But there is something when the sweetness of God is inside of us that even in those difficult times when we see ourselves as beaten down or beaten up, when other people see something different that can happen in you. As we, as we follow God, as we love God, as we serve God, even the difficult times when we see ourselves as bitter, other people can see us as something different right in front of her. And Ruth says, I'm there for you, Naomi. I will always be with you. You know what the very next thing says? She goes back to Jerusalem, go back to Bethlehem and says, don't call me sweetness, call me bitterness because my life stinks. What has God just done? God has just given Naomi the provision for her future. A young woman that says, you know what? I'm willing to give up everything for you, Naomi. I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm willing to sacrifice my future. I'm willing to sacrifice my happiness for you. And Naomi says, I got nothing. And I imagine Ruth is there saying, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, you got me. But it doesn't seem to matter to Naomi because bitterness can cause us to miss God's provision even when it's standing right in front of us. She was missing what God had done. And so in this whole process of redemption that God is going to start, we see at the opening of this, at this, of this redemption, Naomi is kind of stuck. And finally Ruth says, we need to do something about it. We need to go out in the fields and glean. Now this is a very dangerous thing for Ruth to do because she is a Moabite. But something needs to be done. So this lovely industrious woman, <coughs> this woman who is racially, culturally suspect, moves out. She is a recognizable Moabite, both by her reputation, by her characteristics. She, she's not one of us, so to speak. But she goes out to start gleaning in the fields. 
Now, I want to let you in on a little secret. You know how many times the active presence of God is seen? The visible kind of spectacular presence of God is seen in Ruth. If you said zero, you're right. You know how many times you see miracles in Ruth? Not one. You know how many times you hear the voice of God speaking in Ruth? Not once. You know what you do see in Ruth? It just so happened. Any of you ever feel like other people get all the really spectacular answers to prayer? Any of you kind of look around and say, why don't the miracles happen to me? I never see God working. I never see God's hand. Well, folks, Ruth is a wonderful book for you. Ruth is a book that you ought to embrace and you ought to love and you ought to read all the time because you know where God is in Ruth? God is in the just so happens. God is in what you would call the serendipitous moments, the coincidences. God is there behind the scenes, underneath, working through every aspect of the book of Ruth. It's not spectacular lightning in the sky. It's not fireworks. It's nothing. It's just God quietly at work to see his work done, just like he's doing in most of our lives today. And it just so happened that she went out to glean, had no idea where she was going, and she said, I'll go in that field right there. And it just so happened she was in the field of Boaz, who she had no idea who this fellow was. And she is there gleaning, and it just so happens that Boaz happens by the field that day and says, who's that? I've never seen her before. And somebody says, that's Ruth, the Moabite that came back with Naomi. And something clicks because Naomi's a relative of Boaz. It just so happened that God puts them together. And Boaz said, that's a woman that's worth something because she gave up everything for my relative. And he go, goes over and strikes up a conversation and she says, how is it that you're talking to me, a Moabite? And he talks to her a bit more and says, you know what? I want you to stay right with my people and I have told my people not to beat you up. I've told my people not to lay a hand on you. Doesn't it strike you that he expected them to do it if he didn't tell them expressly not to? He had to instruct him, you can't hit her. <laughs> I mean, this is dangerous territory. And not only that, but at the end of the day, he sees an industrious woman and he gives her all kinds of grain and stuff to take back. She goes home and says, and Naomi says, whoa, what's this? And she says, I met this older man today, and he was kind. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't demand anything. He just said, here, take all this stuff. Well, I don't understand what's that all about. And he said, what's his name? And he said, Boaz. And Naomi goes, Boaz? Boaz? Well, he's a relative. 
He's the potential for, here comes a word, a redeemer who can buy back the land that we lost and we can, maybe there's an exit here. And you find this wonderful string of coincidences, quote unquote, that really aren't coincidences at all. Where God is working, 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 bringing about his plans. And you hear that word for the first time, redemption. But it's really not the first redeemer because you find this concept of the selfless gift coming both in Ruth and now in Boaz because Ruth is in a real sense is buying back Naomi's life as well. But the kinsman redeemer comes into play. And now you find one of those things, we, we find so many things in Ruth that don't fit the mold. We find interracial marriage, we find interfaith marriage, and now we find the prospect of something else going on. We find, we find the coincidences coming. And now all of a sudden, here's what Naomi says to Ruth, I want you to propose marriage to Boaz. Can you think of such a thing? I mean, that's kind of hazardous nowadays in 21st century America. I mean, I suppose it's becoming very common, but, but it's still kind of the thing where the man asks the woman, isn't it? Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But anyway, it used to be that way. But it certainly was that way then. And so there's a whole elaborate scheme worked out where Naomi says to Ruth, this is what you're to do, and she goes and essentially proposes marriage to Boaz. I want to tell you, this is risky. It is risky on so many levels. Because what in the world makes her think that Boaz, a person of respect, a person of position, a person of, of, of a certain amount of wealth, what makes her believe that he would possibly be interested in a Moabite woman? Because she is one of those people. But nevertheless, she follows to the letter the instructions, and you find this beautiful passage where she goes to the threshing floor and she just simply lays down at the feet of Boaz. He wakes up in the night, is a little startled, and says, who's there? And she identifies herself and says, spread your cloak over me. And what that is, is that's a proposal of marriage. Boaz says, well, I would if I could, but I can't. Because there's a glitch here. There's somebody closer than I who has the rights to buy back the land. And he says, but I'll work on it. He says, because you're a very special woman. And this is the word that we keep getting about Ruth time and time again. She's a very, very special woman. She's got all of the things working against her, but she's got these things working for her. You could have gone after a younger man, legitimately or unlegitimately. You could have, been a said, you could have simply said, I'm a woman who has needs. You could, there's so many things you could have done. And yet, I am perhaps not the most desirable but you're, you are a woman of integrity. You are a woman of responsibility. He said, I will do this. And so he goes and he works out the arrangements 
with the other person who just happens to be in a push position where he can't redeem the land. You know, it's one of the, another one of those just happens to be. Where God continues to work through the happens to be or the circumstance or the serendipitous moments. Is God working any less through the circumstances than he is working when the fire falls from heaven? When the voice booms from the clouds or from the mountain? God has worked, the same God is working. He's just working through a quieter, through a different means. This is the problem that we have when we insist that God always has to work in spectacular, incredible, unbelievable ways in order for it to be believable. No, God continues to work. And there's a wonderful moment when all of this comes together. Surprising coincidence, amazing provisions, daring plans, and suddenly a marriage is brought about. God says, excuse me, when a marriage when a marriage comes about and the guardian redeemer buys the land and they are once again restored. Boaz took Ruth, verse 13 of chapter 4. She became his wife. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The marriage is complete. But it's not over. This is where we would normally end it, but it doesn't say they all lived happily ever after. There's an additional statement that comes in here. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age, and listen here, for your daughter-in-law. Who is that? Ruth. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Now you and I read that and it just kind of rolls off our tongue and we think, okay, that's nice. That's a nice thing to say. It is a startling thing to say. Because men were highly valued. Women, not so much. I mean, it was the times. It's not a biblical endorsement. It's the times. But when the Bible says seven sons, better to you than seven sons, the first thing we want to note is the Bible isn't saying she's better to you than seven sons, but not than eight. It's not using seven as a specific number. It's using seven as a number that talks about completeness. the, The idea behind it is you could pull in as many sons as you want, and Ruth is more valuable than that. That is a startling statement culturally for those folks to make. It's an incredible, it's, it's an incredible statement. Ruth, an outsider, has not only been invited into the family, she's been invited to sit at the head table. Ruth has not only been invited into the family, she has been taken from obscurity to fame. You know why we know the name Boaz? 
because of Ruth? You know why we know the name Naomi? Because she's connected to Ruth. That's why we know those names. There are numbers of you folks who have done very notable things in your life. You've made some major accomplishments. Do any of us really think that 2,500 years from today, if the Lord hasn't come, that people will still be studying our lives? I doubt it. I doubt it. Unless I accidentally flip the switch on the bomb or something like that. I mean, it's not going to happen. But yet today, at Christmas time, 2015, we're looking at the life of Ruth. From obscurity to fame, from curse to blessing, she's one of those people. She's, she's a Moabite. You certainly certainly don't want to be associated with a Moabite. From cursed to blessed. From an outsider to the genealogy of Christ. From nothing to ultimate significance. God has taken this woman and by his grace, he has changed her completely. You know, there are some takeaways from Ruth for us. For us at Christmas and for us in life. I want to suggest to you that true friends are powerful in God's hands. It wasn't the law that changed Ruth. It wasn't the tabernacle images that attracted Ruth to God. It wasn't those things that made Ruth say, I will swear by the God of Israel that I will never leave you. You know what it was? It was the love of a mother that was willing to give up everything for Ruth. Do you know how much your friends and acquaintances care about what you believe? They don't care. They really don't. You know what makes the difference? The commitment that you have for them. And it's not the kind of commitment that's a selfish commitment. It's not the kind of commitment that says, I will invest with you as long as I think you might become a Christian. Or I will invest in you as long as you agree with me. Or I will invest with you as long as you vote for the same person that I vote for. Or I will vote for you as, or I will love you as long as you don't uh, don't have a different philosophy than I do. There was a simple investment in a person that said, "I don't care if she's a Moabite." You know, we paint everybody with such broad brushes. You know, we don't, in fact we don't even use brushes; we use rollers, the big, really wide ones. We paint everybody with the same brush, and God says, "Stop it." No, we don't, they don't offer selfish friendship. We've lost a lot of the real ability, the, the concept of selfishness, of, of uh, friendship. Uh, you know, husbands and wives, isn't it interesting how we never refer to husbands and wives as friends? Well, this is my wife. And it, we, we have this idea almost that we get married 
and when we get married, they're no longer friends. Friendship is supposed to be a key part, an integral part of marriage, you know. I mean, your spouse is supposed to be your friend. Your spouse is some, someone you're supposed to give to, not to take from. It's supposed to be a selfless participation with our spouses, not something where we simply take what we can and compete. True friends are powerful in God's hands, and they can even lead to somebody walking into faith because they are more likely to walk into faith if they see God in you than if they don't. Second takeaway is God's hand is not always obvious. Some of us are waiting for the next great lightning bolt from the sky, for the next great message written in the heavens, for the next next great miracle, for the next great healing, for the next great fill-in-the-blank. And that's the only place we see God, but so many times we miss the subtle hand of God that is at work in our, hand, in our lives every single day. We miss it when it is right in front of us because we are too busy looking for the spectacular and ignoring that God often works through the mundane. He often works when we think he's not there. He's often most active when we don't even sense him. And the final takeaway I'd like to suggest to you that true grace is powerful in our lives. I want to talk about two senses. One sense is in terms of the lofty view we have of ourselves. I think true grace, true grace is the great leveler. I think true grace cripples prejudice and snobbery. Because we are so prone to build these pedestals to ourselves and talk about how wonderful we are and how much we've achieved and how well that we've done, we tend to look at other people from other groups, from other beliefs, from other circumstances and situations, and we need to remember what Ephesians says. You know, we were the Moabites. You know that, right? We were the people that were far off. We were the people that were disconnected from God. We were the people that were alienated from the promises of the God of God. Why do you know God today? You want to think about that. Why do you know God today? And the answer is because of the grace of God. And if you answer any other question any other way, you're missing it. It's not because of your background, it's not because of your church, it's not because of your qualifications, it's not because of your performance, it's not because anything else except the grace of God. It is the great leveler. It is the great equalizer. And we look at people around us who don't know God, we look at people from other faiths, we look at people from all of these things, we go, and we need to understand there are people who are waiting for the touch of the grace of God. The great leveler. On the other hand, there are those of us who really feel like Moabites. Because the world tells us we're not worth very much. 
We're not worth very much if we're too fat. We're not worth too enough if we're too skinny. We're not worth enough if we don't have the right educational qualifications. We're not good enough if we don't have the right connections, if we don't have the right amount of money, if we don't have the right car. If we, we're not worth very much, and the problem is we listen to that. We hear the world's call. We hear what the Word says. The Word says, you're a Moabite, and we say, I'm a Moabite. I have no worth. Even after we've come to God, even after we, even after we know Christ, we say, I'm a Moabite. And God has told us to sit at the table, and we stand in the back of the room cowering, wondering why in the world we feel so bad. And God says, the seat's here for you. It's reserved. It's yours. Come to the table. That's what the grace of God does. It sets a place at the table for us, not only welcomes us into the family, but it gives us a position of honor. Are you a Moabite? Welcome to the club. Are you inadequate? Welcome. Because you're with family now. And each and every one of us look inside of our own lives and find our own inadequacies and find our own doubts and find our own questions. And When we finally take off the mask, we say, I guess we're all Moabites. And God says, come to the table. That's what he says here. Come to the table. Welcome. Because the Redeemer has come. The one who will be famous in all of Israel. The one who will give everything for us. That's why we honor Jesus Christ today, because he is the great equalizer. At the same moment, he takes away all of our boasting and gives us significance. How does that work? How does it work that we can have nothing to boast about and yet be so significant in Jesus Christ? He's the one that figures all that out, you know. That's why we celebrate him. That's why we're excited about him. That's why we come today and say, you know, Christmas is not just about a manger. It's not just about a nice story. Christmas is about God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, living a life, dying a death, raising again, and fixing things. Fixing things. That's what he did for us. Those who are going to help come forward and help us get ready. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship Jesus Christ and to honor him. Lord, we think of Boaz, that kinsman redeemer, who gave it all so that Naomi's, he could buy back what Naomi had lost. We think of Ruth, Lord, that all of her future was in Moab. She was somewhat comfortable, had a future there, and yet she walked away from that to go to a different place, to go to a foreign place so that she might give it all for Naomi. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who left his throne who left his abode with the Father and came to earth that we might know God. It has changed us forever and we bless you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.